0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Verge 19 at the Convention Center in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, it's all Verge, all the time, including California's climate journey, learning about equity from the curb cut effect, Wells Fargo Talk's sustainable finance, and why UPS is going electric. We've got the power this week on 350. It's October 25th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here outside on a beautiful sunny day at the microgrid at Verge 19 is my friend and Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello,
1: Heather. Hello, Joel. It's so beautiful outside. I miss it out here.
0: You have to go to back to New Jersey where, I don't know, you've probably been tracking the weather. What's it like there?
1: Yeah, I have no idea. I've actually totally been in the bubble. I've been in the Verge bubble the entire week, so I have no idea. Although I will be leaf peeping next week up in New York State.
0: All right, you and your peeps will be leafing or something. <laughs> um, how speaking of the Verge bubble, um, I mean, where do we begin how, to talk about the week?
1: The the thing, the place I begin is how it's impossible to be everywhere. I just I, every time I come to this event, I I have to you know in choosing where you go, which sessions you go to, is so hard. And it's just a really wonderful testament to the, the programming team, uh, Shauna Rappaport, of course, the, the executive director of the conference, and all of the analysts, they put together an amazing program this week. And I, had, I, I can't even tell you how many people came up to me and say, how could you put this session opposite yeah. this session? You know, why did you do this? And actually, it made me really start reflecting on how we have some great video that we do of course with a live stream and that's where I spent a lot of my time this week hosting the sidebar. But I'm really starting to think about how we should be leveraging that uh, technology to, to get some of these other sessions out to the to the virtual audience.
0: Yeah, although well, we don't want to give away too much for free, but we do make the live stream uh, available of the main stage activities and some uh, special additional interviews that you and, and Sarah Golden did from the sidebar exclusively for the uh, virtual audience, which, by the way, you can go in still watch that uh, after the fact. It's no longer a live stream. It's just a stream. <laughs> but um, uh, that's uh, still there. You go to greenbiz.com, and I'm sure you'll find it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I heard that, too, about, you know, so many things in so little time, only one of me and, and all of that. But it was really robust, and, you know, it's kind of what happens when you have four conferences in one, an energy conference, a transport and mobility conference, a circular economy conference, and a carbon removal conference. And and then on the main stage, which we're going to uh, visit some of those sessions over the course of this episode, uh, we had people who cut across a lot of those, although some of them were specifically uh, uh, great uh, conversations about transport that Katie Fehrenbacher did with uh Mary Nichols from the California Resources Board, and uh, Ryan Popple, uh, the CEO of, of Proterra, the electric bus company. But some great, great uh, visionary thinkers. We'll hear a little bit later from uh, Angela Glover-Blackwell, uh, who uh, just gave a really extraordinary stand-and-deliver uh, presentation about equity. We got a welcome this week from the mayor of Oakland, Libby Schaff, a wonderful, amazing, supportive uh, political leader here in our hometown. Uh, got up and started saying, welcome to Oakland, the most unapologetic sanctuary city in America. So that sort of set the tone for mm-hmm. what she's about. But she's also a lot about what she calls tech which is bridging the uh, technology equity gap. And talked a little bit about the clean economy and how that fits into that, which is... A lot of the point here of, of what is the opportunity as uh, we traverse over to a, a clean economy on multiple fronts.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I have to say the Angela Glover discussion was extraordinarily poignant for me, and I it really made me think about things in a different way. As as did Jennifer Granholm, the former governor of Michigan. I just thought she was fantastic. She was so unapologetic right? She on stage. And I, I, I think one of the things that I came away with this week, I'm a kind of, I kind of tend to be a low key kind of nice person. And I feel like we have such an opportunity as a, as a community that's focused on corporate climate action to be a whole lot louder and a whole lot, you know, unapologetic. I think we, we tend to be so quiet and we don't talk about all these great things and why shouldn't we? And you know what? We have to fight back. And I'm, I think that I got a lot of that this week, I think was, we, we talk a lot about political action and not necessarily political action, but companies needing to be part of the conversation, at least at the, at the policy level. And I think I, for some reason, I think that this week that really hit some of the people here at this event in a, in a different way. Everyone's kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this week, it just felt like it clicked for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, it clicked for a lot of people. And it, I mean, you, how can it not click if you're reading the news? How can it not click if you're seeing the fires, the melting Arctic, the fires in the Amazon, you, the heat waves, the hottest month, uh, September, uh, I think, in history and, and, and on and on? I mean, you can, can't hide behind this, you know, quasi-political, you know, mostly political debate. Um, and I don't think anybody's trying to, but the question is, OK, now that we know what we know and now that we can't really argue about what we know, what are we going to do about it and how quickly and what are we going to really push for, uh, you know, do th- our beliefs uh, in the uh, policy arena? And so I think we're getting to a point. I think we've talked about this a little bit on, on past shows. We're sitting on the sidelines which is what most companies do. I, I, you know, without any statistical evidence, but I would say 90% of companies are sitting on the silence, not, you know, saying, we need climate policy, we need a price on carbon, we need cap and whatever. I mean, I, I'm not, this isn't about a particular policy prescription. It's really about putting a flag and saying, you know, this is important, we need, uh, this is about our future and our kids' future, and, and in fact, it's, it's not even a far-off future, and mm-hmm. so... Uh, what at what point companies really step up on that and speak up is going to be really interesting to watch.
1: And at the very least, stop putting your money towards individuals that are in our bodies of, of government that are fighting against these things, right? I mean, it's just it's crazy when you see the money that many companies give to the quote other side end quote right to, to people that actually are deniers and that make no. Bones about it, and that that really actively work against some of these prog, prog, you know some of this progress. So at the very least, okay, maybe your company isn't going to be standing up and, and making the kinds of uh, statements that a, a big company could, but really closely look at who you are supporting and why, and be prepared to talk about it. I mean, it's just how could you support a politician that that is fighting against what you're trying to get accomplished? It's just, it just doesn't make sense to me. And also. I think more than ever at the state level, it's so important for you to support. Um, and you know, I'm getting on my little soapbox here, but it's so important for you to support your your leaders and and the people that are thinking creatively and progressively in your states and your in your cities and your communities and your towns, you know, uh, your counties and whatever. Because there's so much, you know, I used to think when when this current administration got into place that everything would be fine because the states were kind of being left to themselves. But I, I mean. How many suits now has the government, 11 are we now, the federal government going against California? California is a leader, California is an economic leader. I thought that states' rights were, were something that the federal government believed in and suddenly we have an administration that is actually trying to interfere with unbelievable economic policies that are working. We're spending so much money now fighting against at the federal level progress.
0: Well I think we're gonna see some progress on that in the coming year. I know we're gonna be talking about that not to not to plug the next event, but what the hell, at our Greenbiz conference in February in Phoenix we're gonna be talking about the role of CEOs, talking about the role of boards, talking about executive leadership in in policy and, and getting off the sidelines and getting into the game, if you will. But you mentioned California, so let's get a little bit uh, into The Verge. And and, um, I had the great good fortune on the opening session of of Verge on Tuesday to interview the Honorable Gavin Newsom, the uh, now nine months uh, into his first term governor of California. One of the things that was sort of remarkable about that, and we we started off the conversation, I think that's the clip we're going to play here, is talking about how he's managed to integrate his very strong environmental concern into policy, into into transportation, into public health, into infra- infrastructure, education, uh, ec- economic development, and, and workforce creation, and housing. And that was one of the things I asked him about. Here's what he had to say.
2: I think the more I focus on the issue of climate change and climate resiliency, the more I spend time in conferences, large and small, including, by the way, the UN just a few weeks ago, Um, I'm always surprised how little we talk about land use Mm. and how that should be more uh, of a point of focus uh, and emphasis as it relates to our efforts, particularly in a state as dense as California.
1: The other thing that really struck me and Joel great job on that interview I, I guess I'm going to poke you and say good things um, but uh, that that really stood out for me the land use issue but but as well the the investments by the state pension funds right and the, the teachers and the and all of the different uh, public public sector employees and so that was a big focus, and we, Greenfin is a huge focus for us, that money, the money's got to be in the right place, and so California is also really trying to focus its investments in the right way, and, and also that, that sends a signal to the private sector, and, and here's what uh, Newsom had to say about that.
2: We move markets. I mean, we know policy is an accelerator, uh, but we move markets as it relates to our investment. We have an investment portfolio, PERS and STIRs, that's north of $700 billion. We, in the sort of lexicon, the, you know, the nomenclature, the old saw that is Wayne Gretzky in sports, you know, you want to skate to where the puck will be. We know where the economy is going. We know where our opportunities lie. Why are we not investing in those opportunities today? And so I want with intentionality, with focus, uh, with an aggressive posture and stance, purrs and stirs, not to debate situationally the opportunities, but to focus on moving markets and moving their investment portfolio in this space. And for California to do that would be an extraordinary thing and will truly make an impact uh, that will be measurable. And particularly those business uh, leaders in this room, I think it's exactly what you should expect uh, of your state. You, we have audacious goals. And if our goals are, are, are intended to be achieved, then we've got to back those goals up with real action and real investment. And why not have Pers and stirs leading the way? And so, that was the purpose. So how do we make sure that action and investment uh, is inclusive?
0: The growth, the green growth that we have in this state uh, brings everybody to the table in the Central Valley and West Oakland and, and everywhere that's needed.
2: Well, where California has failed, and I say lovingly and respectfully, um, is on inclusion we've had a growth agenda for my lifetime, but we've fallen short on inclusion. And I don't need to give you any more evidence and walk the streets of Oakland or San Jose, San Francisco, L.A. or Bakersfield or Modesto for that matter. You see the ultimate manifestation of our failure on that issue of inclusion uh, with the homeless crisis in the state, the fact that we're richest and poorest states. So you can't have an economic and growth agenda without having an agenda around inclusion. Uh, I think of California capitalism uh, as separate and above. At least it should be in terms of that frame and that focus. And so it's about, yes, environmental justice and economic justice. It's addressing those that have been left behind in this economy and those that may be left behind as we transition into the new economy, particularly urban poor, the elderly, particularly those in rural California. And this is also a point of emphasis, we have an obligation, and I say this as a coastal Democrat, as someone who's grown up in the Bay Area, a fifth generation uh, Bay Area resident, we have an obligation to make sure that we are truly representing the state of California. Many parts, but one body, 58 counties, 470 plus cities, and the folks in the inland part of the state need to be big part of the solution as it relates to advancing our low-carbon green growth goals.
0: Another part of California leadership, of course, is air quality and this uh, fight that's been going on with the uh, automotive industry uh, and the state of California around the uh, CAFE, the uh, fuel economy standards that California sets, and I think 13 other states uh, go along with, and the Trump administration's effort to take away the right of California, which is enshrined in the Clean Air Act, to have a different standard than everyone else. Uh, Katie Verenbacher had a great interview with uh, Mary Nichols, the uh, chair of the CARB, the California Air Resources Board. I caught up with Mary Nichols uh, backstage right after she uh, spoke and, and asked her about uh, what she sees as the biggest opportunity here from in terms of policy, in terms of finance, in terms of technology, uh, how in terms of how we solve the transportation challenges, the congestion, the air quality issues in California. Here's her answer.
3: I think it's all of the above. Um, In the case of the individual driver, um, people have choices about what to buy, and we can't force them to buy anything. So to make them want to buy the cleanest vehicles and have the opportunity to use them because they have places to plug them in requires a combination of market development and infrastructure development, which is definitely a government and private industry uh, project that we have to do. Um, So we need the regulations and the incentives for utilities and others to come in and build the charging facilities. And then we need uh, to do some things to make the consumers more aware of what's actually available and to
0: encourage them to go use them. But what's at the very top of your wish list? If you had that proverbial magic wand and could make one thing happen, what would help us get there further, faster?
3: I think um, making the technologies for uh, trucks in particular uh, more readily available so that we could switch from these heavy diesels that are pounding our roads up and down our state uh, into cleaner uh, zero-emission vehicles, either battery electrics or fuel cell vehicles, would be probably the place that I would go first. And that's why we are, as a state, investing actual... Uh, money for d- development, R&D, as well as um, incentives to deploy some of these new technologies in the real world, so we get the chance to see them and optimize them.
0: The other session, as you mentioned before, Heather, was uh, Angela Glover Blackwell uh, and talking about toxic inequality. Talk to us about that and play us a little clip.
1: So one of the things that I'm trying to understand better as uh, a, a white woman is is the concerns of communities that don't look like me and I, I, I'd never heard that term toxic inequality and I but it is true. I mean it's just it's it just pervades the policies that, that have been in place for many years in the country and and no one really well maybe some people put them in place on purpose, but you know it, it just is a lot of this unconscious bias thing. So she really was just one of these low-key but incredibly impactful speakers. Um, and she spoke about that toxic quality, but also one of the things that I really, really appreciate I, that I hadn't thought about was her point about how many young people were coming up and how we have an advantage over other countries that are aging and this is an opportunity for us to really build on that advantage and create this this new workforce that has totally different skills, totally different skills from today's U.S. workforce, but also incredible competitive advantages that these other countries don't have. Um, and she, she cited some really amazing statistics about the, just the numbers, right? And I'm not going to try. It. <laughs> I'm not. I'm too tired to try to, to remember and quote them, but. Uh that was something that that really struck me and and the other thing that, that really struck me was the impact of policies that are that are formed for a certain community and how they can ripple out and have benefits for others so she calls it the curb cut effect and and you know the curb cuts are those those things you see at the crossing at the crosswalks where it, it, the pavement is made lower so that it can accommodate someone with disabilities someone in a wheelchair or someone that just can't lift their leg up to the curb and how that impacts so many other communities, um, around you, like a mother pushing a stroller or you carrying your, your, uh, you know, your and <laughs> trying to get from one place to another and using public transportation to do it. Right. Um, and, and just how, when we include individuals that we don't necessarily think about including all the time, how it can benefit everyone. So I just, you know, we're, we're going to play a big chunk of her, her talk here. And, um, I just thought she was so impactful and so insightful and so persuasive. So here's Angela Glover-Blackwell.
4: What we have to do is that we have to have a strategy that makes sure that the people who are going to be the future are ready to make that future the bright one that we all hope will it would be. The sad truth is, perhaps it's sad, could be good news. I'm going to say the sad truth is that the future of the nation is dependent on the very people we have been leaving behind as a nation. It is sad that we have been leaving them behind, but we can do something about it. We can make sure that we are building a society that is driven by equity, just and fair inclusion into a society in which all can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential. And we can't do it if we're not willing to look at who's being left behind and how we got this way. I wish that we could just use the words inclusive economy and make it so. But if we don't think about people who are black, why it is that they're concentrated in neighborhoods without good schools, without access to health care, without access to fresh fruits and vegetables. People don't just choose to live in those communities. We have had policies, public and private ones, that have forced people into those communities. And then we have pulled out all of the things that make for healthy living. It's not just that people who are Latino want to go to schools that aren't servicing them, want to work two and three jobs and barely make it. We actually have had policies and strategies that have forced people into those circumstances. We need to look at who they are. We need to look at the history. We need to understand what we have done as a nation, because it's only with that kind of deliberate education of ourselves and commitment to do something about it and searching for the strategies that will make a difference, that we can unleash the power and the promise that is here in this nation. Because these shifting demographics are a gift. Because the median age for people who are white in America is 42. The median age for people who are Latino, the fastest growing among the groups of poverty, is about 28. And so we are still a young nation, even as much of the rest of the world is wringing its hands, countries in Europe, around what to do about their aging population. It is a gift. When you think about entrepreneurial spirit and activity, it is so amazing to think about people who are Asian, Latino, African-American. They are more likely to start small businesses than people who are white. And the challenge of raising a family of building community. All of those things, they spur innovation. And so we have all of that, but we're not investing in it. We're not lifting it up. We're not making sure that we can take advantage of it. If you think about it, we are becoming a world nation. And what could be more powerful in a global economy than to have a population that is linked to the world through language, through kinship, through custom? We have what we need. As a matter of fact, two things that are important have now converged. Being able to produce, achieve equity, and have everyone reach their full potential is a moral agenda. There's a moral imperative to do that. It is immoral to continue to leave people behind because of their language, their color, their race, their origins, their religion. It is immoral to do that. To invest is a moral imperative. But we also have an economic imperative. We also have a democratic imperative. We cannot be proud of democracy on the world stage if it is not a democracy that works within the context of inclusion. And so we have gotten to the point that achieving equity is an economic imperative, and therefore equity is the superior growth model for the nation. We get the equity agenda right. We get the environmental agenda right. We get the economic agenda right. It is extraordinary that we could be at this point, but it will take real resolve to focus on it.
0: The whole notion of equity and opportunity in the clean economy was uh, an ongoing thread throughout Verge this year, uh, very deliberately, because we, as we look and we see, we see these technologies uh, scaling, we see uh, uh, these markets starting to develop, we realize that they have to be able to uh, benefit everybody. And so we've had a number of sessions, including uh, Angela Glover-Blackwell talking about this, but also Jennifer Granholm and Ryan Boppel.
1: Yeah, so this session was also very powerful and very uh, high high energy. Uh, Jennifer Granholm does not hold back on stage, so she was great. But um, there's so many great things that were talked about in this this session. But the one in particular I thought was very appropriate for our audience, and that was the discussion about clean energy. Economy jobs, right? So Jennifer Granholm was presiding um, over Michigan when many of the major layoffs at General Motors started happening. And and how do you train these these employees that are being idled? And and of course, states have a lot of ideas for how to put people back to work. And you know, incentive programs. And there's tons of programs in place already. And this is something that, that everyone thinks will battle a lot. And it's how states compete, essentially, right? You know, they have this program and that program. But the, the thing that, that she really keyed in on was how t- today's training programs are so ineffective for, for these, new, these new jobs. And partly because, of course, many of them involve technology, but also because people don't want to learn in the same way that we thought. We, you know, like we, it's, we're inclined to send people to schools and go to this university and go to this community college. But, but Ms. Grantholm really talked about how the sort of focus on entrepreneurship and, enter- and, and adding apprenticeship to that needs to be really emphasized so she's, she spoke about that so how, how to put people on the job and get, we, we expect people to have these skills when they walk in the door and how, how that needs to change right? so the companies uh, and then Ryan Popple had some really great things to say about how they're addressing the, the sort of training needs in their communities um, I can't remember where they're based I think they're in the Southern California but um, how they, they look at the sort of Rosie, <laughs> Rosie the Riveter model right And and that's You know, how how do you get the right people in your factories? How do you how do you make sure that the 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 community looks the workforce looks like the community? So both of them had some great thoughts on how we could change training and education to to really support the growth of the clean economy jobs. And as well, they both talked about how businesses could be involved with that. So this is a big chunk of their their talk. It's it really focuses on that, and I think you'll find their their comments to be particularly insightful.
5: You know, there was a study that was done out of Boston, Boston College, a guy named Steve Besson. And he decided that he would study jobs that had new technology introduced to see whether the technology actually got rid of the jobs or whether something else was going on. And what he found, he studied 317 professions. And of the 317 professions, only one profession was eliminated by technology, by the introduction of additional technology, and that was the elevator operator. All of the other ones saw significant growth with the introduction of new technologies. But the problem is it's not a one-off, right? So you're not going to have perhaps as many people actually on an assembly line at a manufacturing plant for EVs. but you may have additional jobs created, you will have additional jobs created in the ecosystem. And so if it is true that for every one technology job that is introduced, you create five in the ecosystem, then yes, I think that EVs will absolutely create additional jobs if the model works. And I think, you know, when you consider also the advent of autonomous vehicles, the combination of EV, AV, is going to create a whole ecosystem that we're not even thinking about of jobs. We just have to make sure that we transition people in the right way. The issue of training people, we don't do training well as a country. We do training terribly and and we waste billions of dollars in training programs like the Worst Workforce uh, Investment Opportunity Act or the Trade Adjustment Assistance Act that for training programs that have been proven to be inefficient and unsuccessful. So if we could take the dollars we're spending on subsidizing training that's lousy or subsidizing unemployment and help to subsidize employment, on-the-job training, where people are actually learning something that is relevant to the new job that they'll be taking on, and leveraging technology to be able to take people to the next level by through machine learning, et cetera. Those are the kinds of strategies we should be looking at, and that's the really big lesson. You have to be targeted. You have to train people on the job. It is not – training is not disconnected from employment anymore.
6: I agree 100% on the training side, and I I think there are a lot of different layers to it, including – what um, benefits or incentives we provide to companies that provide training, and training in certain uh, highly skilled areas. I think there's a, a huge conversation to have around our uh, coll- collegiate system and our junior colleges. There are there are a lot of other countries around the world that have um, very interesting models that um, are much more efficient than the way we provide an education uh, in a post-high school environment. And... What we're running into as a as a business is, we are we are constrained by uh, workforce skills, workforce development, especially on the customer side, and uh, it's it's pretty fascinating to look at. There are seventy thousand city bus uh, city buses on the road right now. I'd say fifty thousand plus of them are diesel. So you've got you have a whole workforce that's trained around fixing diesel engines that break fairly often, but you have got two problems. Electrification is coming on strong, and that's it, a very different uh, digital drivetrain. like the governor was saying, in terms of it, it's it's physically simple, but it's complex from a software perspective. So you're not listening to how the engine's rumbling to try to determine what's wrong with it. You've got to be able to get into a CAN network and read code. Um, so one problem is you've got a new technology that's coming, whether whether the market likes it or not, because globally this is happening. The second piece, though, is we are Retiring out the conventional um, mechanics and maintenance personnel faster than we're replacing them, and it's hard to convince uh, new workers coming into the, the workforce to invest their career in internal combustion. So it, it, it's um, we're, we're going to end up with a shortage of people who really know how to do physical things, driven by both of those factors. And I, I agree completely that if we can, if we can retrain. It, there will absolutely be a, a phenomenal market for people who can understand and implement the can new I, tech. Can I
5: just say, on this retraining, though, it's super important. I mean, a lot of the people that you're talking about are not people who, you know, went and got a four-year college degree, et cetera. They're folks who who like working with their hands and stuff like that. A lot of those folks are not going to want to go sit at a community college desk next to a 19-year-old and ta- be taking trigonometry. They, th- that's not the kind of learning that they feel dignifies them and that, that they could actually earn a living while they're learning, right? So the sort of earn-and-learn apprenticeship models, giving people the dignity of being able to learn on the job with an eye to a specific um, profession. I mean, even, even though you may need people who know how to code, a lot of those jobs can still be trained with people who don't, who are not software engineers. So, so I am on the board of a company called Tectonic that takes people who are non-traditional folks, people who never had a, a four-year degree, but who have, maybe have a knack for looking at computers. And you know, they have their, they have eighty-five percent placement, and they're people of color, they're women, and they're veterans as software engineers after a boot camp so i think that the same can be done in the you know in the ev space many in the business world are of the mindset that employees should show up on day one fully trained and ready to go and so hence we've got a lot of vacancies in this space because employers are not partnering on training, and so I think that, and the reason is because it's a lot, it's a risk, right, to invest dollars in if it doesn't work out. How do you de-risk it? Do like other countries do have a co-investment with the government and the employer so that you maybe share the costs of training. Maybe the government takes a bigger chunk at the beginning, and then you phase the employer's participation in as maybe you get to the six-month role, and then they both can check one another out. Do I like this employer? Do I like this employee? But at least you will have a shared responsibility for the training, and I think that's what we have to move in the direction of, like the other countries that have done this so well, like Germany. Switzerland etc and bully to Governor Newsom who has put on the table a goal of getting I want to say a million apprenticeships out the door now what are the policy um, you know legs to that table that has to be that has to be cre- you know crafted that's a good question but I think at least having a goal and a recognition that it is a shared responsibility is important
6: the only thing I'd add is is that this is also an opportunity to add diversity to the workforce and I think for a lot of
7: Reach Americans,
6: we, we, we sort of stereotypically have, have an archetype of, of what that job is and what the demographics are of the person who fills that job. As a company, Proterra, one of the things that, that we've done is we've engaged with organizations like Daughters of Rosie. Because if, if we are going to build a very broad base of appreciation and pride in our sustainable energy sector, we, it, the workforce needs to look like the population of this country. it it should not look like a a, uh, black and white film from the 1940s on manufacturing, unless it's actually a World War II film when (laughs) Rosie was there. But um, we've we've found that that's been a very successful way to break through some of the kind of stereotypical barriers or biases that exist, especially in manufacturing and engineering.
5: Greta Thunberg. I mean, really, talk about somebody who I mean, would that we could all be so courageous, right? Would that we could all put our entire lives on the line for a cause that we believe in like this. Uh, I'll just, Nancy Pelosi has this, um, talks about having visited a bishop in South Africa and on the wall of the bishop's office was this prayer. The prayer goes, when at last I stand before the face of God, God will say to me, show me your wounds. And if I have no wounds, God will ask, was there nothing worth fighting for? Greta Thunberg at 16 has more wounds than probably all of us here. God bless her for doing that. And our challenge is when we die to be scarred up from having born battles, fought battles on behalf of our planet and on behalf of our people.
1: One of the people that I had the good pleasure of speaking to at Verge this week was Peter Harris, the International Sustainability Director for UPS. He's thinking a lot about their urban mobility plans and the broader agenda at this wonderfully huge logistics company. Peter, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you, Heather. So, one of the things that is pretty clear is that electrification, is really central to to improving urban mobility and to getting to the next place in the transportation infrastructure. What does this mean for UPS? I mean, what is is your overall vision on electrification?
8: So electrification is uh, a a very important shift for us. Firstly, because it offers the genuine prospect of zero emission transportation, takes away the tailpipe emissions altogether. By definition, there is no tailpipe. Uh, And it also offers, in conjunction with renewable electricity supply, a dramatic, arguably total, elimination of greenhouse gas emissions as well. So that's one reason why it's important. I think the other reason why it's really important for us is because it's a natural partner for the other big shift that's taking place within the automotive sector, which is around connectivity. And this is the shift that will bring to us uh, the ability of things to talk to other things, so the internet of things, the physical internet, ultimately autonomous technologies. And those two shifts really work together in consort. They support each other. So electrification is uh, yeah, one of the biggest shifts that we're undertaking, arguably the biggest shift in our journey towards being fully sustainable.
1: What makes it challenging?
8: Wow. So I guess, first of all, there's the, the obvious part of the problem, which is around vehicles. Yeah, so vehicle supply is a challenge. Uh, at the moment, the market, for various reasons, does not offer the kind of electric vehicles that we would need within our operation. So we've been tackling that through, for example, building our own conversions from diesel. So we take midlife diesel vehicles and we convert them to electric uh, propulsion using a, a series of partners. Um, and we're, we're building on that to develop a partnership with a new supplier now through with whom we're, we're building a ground-up design, a new, brand new design of electric vehicle. But that's only one piece of the pie. What, what you discover when you start down this road is that uh, it, even once you've cracked the vehicle-related problems, there's another equally big, equally interesting and equally challenging difficulty, which is around power supply. We found, for example, in our uh, central London facility, that as soon as we exceeded 10 electric vehicles simultaneously plugged in, the 11th one could not be recharged at the same time as the first 10. Uh, So it's all about uh, power capacity pinch points uh, within the local grid network. Uh, And the conventional way to solve the problem is to go to the local network operator and to buy what's called an upgrade. That's all about bigger cables, new substations, all that type of thing. You can do that. And we did one of those things in central London in 2013. It was a painful process, very expensive, inflexible, very cumbersome. Uh, It's possible, but it's just not very uh, business friendly. So having done that in 2013 and raised our power supply capacity from the 10 vehicles that we could plug in up to 65 roll forward a few years and a couple of years ago we were getting close to that new limit that new 65 vehicle limit and we wanted a better solution to the problem we didn't want to do another upgrade because we knew how uh, how, how ugly it had been first time round. so we formed a consortium between ourselves the local network operator the dno uh, and uh, an organization called uh, cross river partnership who brought to the consortium the london boroughs we applied for some government support. We got support from Innovate UK, which is the UK's innovation agency. And then uh, between us in the consortium, we've developed a technology solution to the same problem. And it's all around smart grids and local energy storage. The effect of it has been that now, we, we without any further upgrades at all of the conventional type, we're able to uh, electrify our entire central London fleet. So that's taken our power supply capacity from 65, all the way up to 170 vehicles. In fact, it took us slightly beyond that without any further conventional upgrades using a technology solution. So why is this important? It's important because this is all part of our journey to bring down the cost of electrifying our fleet and getting it to the point where it's comparable with, or even uh, better than, the cost of putting a diesel fleet on the road. And when we get to that stage, which we're moving rapidly towards, and I think we'll be there in a few years' time, when we get to that stage then the the uh, the, the the challenge shifts away from being purely uh, what can we do to be um, appropriate for the environment towards what is the best commercial decision. And that's an entirely new ball game.
1: You know, you just described what sounds like a pretty complex information technology solution. So I'm wondering what kind of investments you've had to make in your systems, in software, maybe things like artificial intelligence, you mentioned the internet of things a moment ago. You know how did that? How did you get the buy-in internally and operationally to get that moving ahead?
8: So the, the the software side of the the particular project we were discussing there was indeed complex, but it came as part of a package that we developed with the consortium. the the the, the bigger software challenges probably to your point uh, occur around the whole connectivity debate around the Internet of Things, the physical Internet, um, and, and it's all about big data. It's all about the ability of supercomputers to, to manage vast arrays of information in ways that have only just become possible in the past few years. Probably the best example of that in our operation right now is uh, an application called Orion. It's actually uh, in use right now in, in our US operation on the ground. We don't have it at international yet, we're trialing it. Um, and what Orion does is it, uh, it, 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 it looks at all of the different possible ways in which a driver's daily route could be conducted and let's say a driver does 100 stops in a day, then actually there are 100 factorial ways of conducting that route. That means 100 times 99 times 98 times 97 all the way through to times one. If you work that out, you come to a number which you can actually put, you can fit it onto your, uh, your laptop screen, but it's got a lot of zeros and is actually bigger than there are a number of seconds in the age of the earth. You know, we're talking about a massive complex problem but we developed an algorithm in-house to, to tackle that challenge and Orion has then subsequently been deployed in the U.S. and it's had the effect of eliminating on average seven miles per driver a day from our U.S. Uh, operation. That's a huge amount compared to what was already a good manual route planning system. It's taken 100,000 metric tons of carbon per year out of our US operation. So that's a great example of how big data technologies are, are really starting to become feasible now in, in everyday life. And we will see this now being extended into uh, new areas of connectivity of the type that, that we've discussed that will completely transform the way in which logistics is, uh, is performed.
1: How are you sharing information from one place to another and from one partner to another i mean imagine you mentioned quite a few collaborators on the london project how do other cities and and, and other locations of ups learn from what's going on and what could other partners learn from this
8: yeah that's that's a great point and, and we we firmly believe in the, the 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 old adage that says a rising tide lifts all ships so we we have uh, in our operation, about 120,000 global ground fleet size. About 10,000 of those now, a little over 10,000, are on some form of alternative fuel. That's what we call our rolling laboratory. And we we see that as, as the name implies, a laboratory, an experiment, something with which we can learn. And we pass on those learnings. Primarily, the way in which we do that is through myself and my colleagues going to conferences like this uh, and, uh, and others and actually getting up on platforms and, and explaining what we've learned and mistakes that we've made uh, and passing on to the extent that we're able uh, advice from what we've learned to help others avoid making the uh, the same mistakes. So we can all as a, then as a society just move forward faster. I think that's what this is all about. We, we benefit from that learning being shared, because then uh, the the industry moves faster and we gain from that that acceleration within the industry. So it is all about sharing of learnings and, and mutual benefit that comes from that. That helps to ramp up the speed at which technology can be deployed. That brings down the cost. That makes it better for everybody. And that means that society moves, moves more quickly towards being sustainable.
1: One last question for you. What will success look like for you? I mean, what, what, how are you going to define and measure whether this is a successful
8: strategy? Success for me is when the the types of technologies and innovations that we've been discussing are mainstream, when they're scaled uh, and they're part of what I would call business as usual. So we're still at the stage right now where we're beyond pilots, but we're not at the stage where uh, these things are running under their own steam. once, Once we've got to the point where these things are Uh, commercially rational on a day-to-day basis, they're just part of our normal operation, they're part of the way in which we just do things, normal business, then that's where I'll be uh, satisfied. So we're a little way off that, but we're moving rapidly in that direction.
1: One of our repeat visitors here at Verge this week is Mary Wenzel, the Executive Vice President and Head of Sustainability and Corporate
9: Responsibility for Wells Fargo. M- Mary, thanks for joining GreenBiz 350. Thanks, Heather. It's great to be here. It's a really wonderful event, a great chance to meet peers and partners and collaborators. Um, that are in the sustainability space, so happy to be here. So thank you
1: for uh, bringing some of your uh, your innovators that are in the, the, uh, the incubator program that you have at Wells Fargo. You have a lot of responsibilities. I was reading your bio before uh, we got ready for this interview, and um, one of the things, though, I wanted to key in on for this this talk was your interest in sustainable finance. So you've really helped the bank shape its policy there. Uh, The latest investment and commitment that you've made uh, to sustainable finance is $200 billion in April 2018. That builds on lots of other billions before that lots of different focuses for that money, too. Clean technologies, clean energy, green bonds, alternative transportation, sustainable agriculture. So I would love for you to give us a progress report on on that initiative. And, you know, I'm just also curious, when you look at that $200 billion, is there a timeline for when it should be spent?
9: Yes, thank you. So the $200 billion commitment that we announced runs through 2030. So it's a it was a 10-plus year commitment. But What led us to make that commitment was really an understanding that sustainability is an imperative that we all have to support, and sustainability was an opportunity that's going to really create opportunity for us and for our customers and so we wanted to be engaged in a conversation supporting our customers as technology either disrupts or enhances their businesses and so it's really great opportunity for us to engage with clients who are seeing all the same trends and um, demands for a focus on sustainability that we're seeing as a company and so we are leading AgBank so thinking about agricultural technology and how we understand the the issues that are going to disrupt the agricultural industry, that are going to transform the agriculture industry, that are really going to provide opportunity for um, different companies to accelerate their businesses based on sustainability. So it's been a fun um, way to deep, more deeply engage our clients, a fun way to collaborate with other um, companies a great chance to get to know and support entrepreneurs who are focused in these areas. So our innovation incubator is a $30 million partnership with the National Renewable Energy Lab and the Danforth Plant Science Center. And so far, we've supported 30 entrepreneurs in the built environment and sustainable agricultural space, really inspiring entrepreneurs who are solving pressing issues in those respective areas fun to work with them but overall in 2018 we did about 23 billion dollars of sustainable finance in multiple areas that includes um, significant investments in wind and solar it includes supporting clean technology entrepreneurs it includes supporting our utility clients that are rapidly adding renewables into their generating mix Who's responsible for making
1: decisions about how the money is allocated and what metrics you're using to choose a project? So like, obviously you're not making all those decisions. You've got a lot of really smart people in your bank, um, but there's, there's
9: probably a lot of opportunities. So how do you pick the projects? So my group is responsible for defining and work to define and we published our sustainable finance accounting methodology. We wanted to be really transparent about what we're counting towards that $200 billion commitment. But the lines of business are responsible for really implementing that commitment. And so before we set the commitment, we worked with our commercial real estate group, our agricultural bankers, our energy team, and others across the bank that had to own this commitment and had to really come to the table with um, clients and opportunities. So it's an embedded, integrated commitment across the business. Our team doesn't own it. You know, we championed. Um, the announcement of the commitment and the development of the commitment, but it's really owned across the company. So how are you going to, to go back to
1: sort of the, is, is this successful, right? So when you, you make an investment, like those investments in the startups, but also that $23 billion you mentioned, are they just, you know, assessed on the same metrics that any other investment would be
9: assessed? They are they're they're definitely um, it, it's increasingly becoming business as usual you know more and more of our commercial real estate clients are developing buildings that meet different green building certifications and standards right that is becoming um, the have to do as a developer of commercial real estates it's, it's also good business right we all we all want to be in green buildings where we kind of work and live and so it's it, it's not, you know, the, the challenge is how we do more than business as usual, it's how we bring um, energy and, and, and focus on new opportunities. And that's really the fun of our innovation incubator and some of the sustainable finance collaborations that we're participating in. is really what's, what's next and how do we accelerate capital deployment to really address the climate challenge. And so we're a member of the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Alliance, We're funding entrepreneurs through the Innovation Incubator, and we're really looking at how we kind of put our foot on the gas to really do more sustainable finance. So uh, fintech is a big focus
1: for the bank, but more recently you've started investing in climate analytics technology, so I'm
9: curious why that's an important investment for the bank. So Wells Fargo has a accelerator that invests in different technology opportunities and they just invested in the climate service and it was one of our largest investments to come out of the accelerator. And I think it's a really great example of um, the speed at which companies are recognizing that climate is both a disruptor and an opportunity for their business. And, and we and other clients need good data to be able to assess the impacts of climate change, to be able to understand how climate change is going to impact our businesses and the opportunities related to that. And, and TCS is one of those companies that we think has a very um, needed and and strong solution to help companies better understand those issues. Before you joined Wells Fargo, you were with the U.S.
1: EPA. And I that really intrigued me um, because I think it's wonderful when a business leader has that kind of public sector experience. So I'm curious to what extent Wells Fargo and your team are prioritizing sort of support for public private partnerships right? You have a, a, some some strong background in working with tribal nations for
9: example. How how important is that? And how important is it for, is it for business in in general? Yeah. I think it's critical. These are significant challenges that we're all being asked to respond to today and none of us alone can going kind to of meet those challenges independently, and we need to collaborate, we need to engage stakeholders broadly in this journey towards sustainability. And so public-private partnerships have been my 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 roots. So I started my career at the U.S. EPA in Washington, D.C. when they launched the Energy Star brands, and it was about raising awareness of the opportunity and working with companies that were um, developing more energy-efficient products. And so That journey, I think, has been really powerful for me in in recognizing and understanding the power of collaboration, the power of partnership, and it's a big part of what we do across the bank, not just in the sustainability space, but in the housing affordability space in the economic empowerment space. We have to work together to tackle these big issues. Where do you go from here? We go forward. (laughs) We go forward on this journey and we think about how we more deeply embed a focus on sustainability and corporate responsibility across the enterprise, how we um, scale up to have even greater impact on these issues. We're in the process of resetting our corporate responsibility commitments and we understand the bar continues to raise in terms of stakeholder expectations, in terms of the need to make greater progress and have greater impact and in terms of the opportunities, frankly. So we're excited, it's a great journey, Um, we move forward.
1: One topic that was part of several sessions at Verge this week was the blockchain and how blockchain technology can affect a lot of different use cases related to sustainability, including transportation and, of course, energy and, and the, the energy infrastructure that we all are facing and dealing with and using today that we are so dependent upon. And one of the speakers about this topic here at Verge was C.K. Umachi. He's with Pacific Gas and Electric, the very well-known utility in Northern California. C.K., thank you for joining us on Greenbus 350.
7: Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak and glad to be here.
1: Now, you've only been with pg and for four years, but you got interested in blockchain before that time. And I'm kind of curious, you know, what your background is in this, because it wasn't in a utility context necessarily.
7: Yeah, so I've been with pg and for years, uh, but I've been in the blockchain space a couple years. So actually wa- during my time at pg but prior to me joining our Grid Edge team, which actually focuses on blockchain and some of these other forward-facing trends. Uh, but personally, I got interested in it, like most people, through the cryptocurrencies. And back in 2017, everybody was making money. Um, and I was making a little bit of money back then and decided I would learn about what This was that i was investing in Uh, so started understanding the actual blockchain components and what some of these uh cryptocurrencies and platforms were actually trying to build on and that just got me down the rabbit hole of really trying to understand it and really learning what the potential impacts were of the blockchain and there was a lot of hype associated with back then and there still is but really started to understand what some of the actual benefits are uh, of the blockchain somehow found myself doing that at work uh it's kind of fate and coincidence that I met the people doing it at pg At that time, I didn't even know that we were doing this as a company, but it was a great opportunity and really aligned with my interests. So I've really, really enjoyed being able to kind of pivot into the blockchain space at pg So
1: I think many people view or the perception is commonly that this is a huge disruption, like blockchain, oh my God, utilities got to be afraid of it, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, but of course, it's a myth. Um, and I think that there's a lot of opportunity and um, yeah, but there's certainly some challenges, but so I'm just curious how pg and views blockchain as a tool like what so the, you've got this team as part of the grid edge group What is what are you exploring?
7: Yeah, absolutely so when we originally started looking at blockchain It was kind of out of the corporate strategy lens of what are the trends and technologies that could impact this and that's really what our grid edge team focuses on so uh, we actually we started, started looking at blockchain back in uh, 2017 and really looking at it from a standpoint of how could blockchain change the grid, It change how the grid can operate and function, and what could a, <clears throat> a blockchain-enabled grid look like. Uh, so we've really been really focused on understanding how blockchain could potentially enable uh, different use cases in the grid from uh, tracking different assets to enabling DERs to interact
1: so you just mentioned a couple of app- applications, so you know, what are the others that you're exploring right now?
7: Yeah, so uh, at pg we're currently mostly focused on a, a carbon credits use case, uh, so being able to pull different information from uh, the grid, uh, specific to the energy that's being provided, where the energy coming from, what the carbon intensity of the energy is and, how, and what the load is associated with that uh, to quantify how many carbon credits you should be accruing. Um, in California, there's a specific program called the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, uh, which has calculations on, based on all those, all those different inputs, how many credits you can have. And then there's a marketplace to transact and their main goal is to uh, decrease the uh, carbon intensity of the transportation fuels in the state of California.
1: So I'm curious, who was involved with helping prioritize that? Because obviously, it wasn't just your tech team, right? So there must have been other individuals within the organization that said, yeah, this is a good, this might be a good business case for us.
7: So I can't take full credit for that, so uh, some of my predecessors, and I will give a shout out to my former boss, Lydia Crefta, uh, who initially started the team, um, she actually started a group called the Blockheads. Um, it's like an informal working group at PG&E where we kind of look at blockchain and its potential impacts in the space and just kind of nerd out on, on, on blockchain and those uh, topics. Uh, so they started to really scope out a bunch of use cases. Uh, so they scoped out a I forget, forget the exact number, but uh, quite a few different use cases. And then we kind of watered our way down to understand, okay, maybe this use case isn't necessary for blockchain, and got down to two use cases, one being the carbon credits use case, another one being uh, asset management and asset tracking. Uh, but we've kind of pivoted to focus really heavily on the carbon credits use case, um, but also looking forward at the potential distributed energy resource, DER uh, interactions, understanding how that could potentially change the grid as well.
1: So can you share any pilot um, Timelines for that for that carbon use case, and and you know if you can, what sorts of metrics would you use to assess whether it's working or not?
7: Yeah, so we've been looking at this for over about the last year or so. Um, so for us, we've been able to really start to build out some uh, proof of concepts with that, and we've been working with some technology uh, vendors uh, to build this out. So we're at a point where hopefully by early next year we'll be able to use this internal um, to quantify and hopefully submit our our, our carbon credits. Um, I would say as far as metrics, what we're, look, what we're hoping to do is basically not ruin anything. <laughs> so be able to kind of replicate how the system is operating today. Uh, we felt that the carbon, uh, the LCFS use case was a good one because it's an existing uh, process, an existing market. Uh, so we weren't creating anything from scratch. So initially it's really going to be ensuring that we can recreate what's already happening in the current uh, process, which is a lot of very, very spreadsheet intensive Um recreate that and be able to do the same calculations, but also do it more uh, efficient and more automated and also in a way that you can drill down to the data and trust the data more.
1: Right. So the final question I have is just what obstacles and headaches do you face in deploying this or, you know, I mean, they could be technical or otherwise, right? It's not just technical obstacles that get in the way of new technologies. Yeah.
7: So I I think one of the big ones is definitely regulatory. Um, Being a large utility, highly regulated, old enterprise company, um, there's a lot of hesitance to kind of push things forward, uh, specifically because the regulations haven't kept up, so the regulations aren't written in a way, in a blockchain-enabled way. Uh, So as we start to think through how we can progress forward, we definitely want to be able to kind of work with the regulators, so we've begun having those conversations for sure. Um, The other, other big one is definitely consumer data privacy. Uh, so in California, the consumer California Consumer Privacy Act is uh, supposed to get rolled out on January first. Uh, but even outside of that, we're really starting to think of how we can utilize our customers' data in, in some of these applications, but without exposing it. Um, so I guess one of the great things about the blockchain is it's immutable, and you can't uh, once it's on the blockchain, you can't somebody can't come back and, and tamper with it and change it. On the other end of that, once you put information on the blockchain that's not supposed to be on the blockchain, that's never coming back. You can't hide that uh, at a later point. So we're definitely very cognizant of consumer data as we're trying to move forward with any of these applications that we're looking at.
0: our 350 podcast for this week here at verge 19 don't go away because at the end in about 30 seconds we're going to play a very special song that was performed on stage uh at verge 19 as usual you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and find out more about the things we talked about in this episode make sure to check out our free e-newsletters we've got five of them one each Monday through Friday. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. And before we let you go... Listen to The Sea Stars, an acapella group of young professional women, including Shauna Rappaport, our very own vice president and executive director of Verge. That's right, opened the show. It actually sung Gov- Governor Newsom and I onto the stage. Here are oh, The Sea Stars. Yeah. See you next time.
9: You ready? Bum. Bum. Seems like Bum. everybody Bum. loves blue
1: skies. Bum. So Bum. why leave pollution Bum. unpriced? If we don't act now, our
9: kids pay the bill. Planets get
1: hot, gotta chew.
9: Come on, everybody get serious. As the crisis gets more dangerous, the Earth will survive. But for us to be fine, we don't have a whole lot of time. Ain't about moves to the left. Ain't about moves to the right. Can you feel it? Boom. We got to set a carbon price. It's all about the money, money, money. It's how we move our money, money, money. We gotta get the world back on track. Carbon needs a price tag. It's all about the uh. to change, to change. Yes, time to what to think, to think. Gotta get the world back on track. Carbon needs a price tag. Bum. Now let Bum. me take y'all back in time when Bum. Paris made the world unite, Bum. and we all decided together Bum. to write a temperature turn ocean Bum. rise. Bum. Bum. Bump, bump, ba-dum, emittin' Bump, ba-dum, bump, ba-dum, bump, ba down. Down. Bump. Bump. Right now, bump. Fine. Fine, ain't about moves to the left, uh-uh. ain't it's about moves
1: to the right.
9: To the, Can you feel the, right. Can you it? Boom. we got to set a carbon price. It's all about the, the money, money, money. It's how we move our money. money, money, money. we got to get the world back on track. Carbon needs a price tag. It's all about the Uh Cha-ching, cha-ching, yeah it's time to What? The think, the think, gotta get the world back on track Carbon needs a price tag a price tag, it's future back. For you and your kids, we carbon back trap. And you can keep the
1: gas, we'll build a solar farm. Cause what you get is cleaner air and lots of jobs. If Cali was a country, be the leader of the pack. Our economy is booming with the ba-dum, statewide carbon tax. It's like
4: this, man. You ba-dum, can't ba-dum, take away what we got. Our cafe standard's stronger than a partisan attack.
0: So bum, we ain't gonna
4: wait for your permission. We'll elect the bum, leaders who will regulate bum, emissions. Gaping, we gon' keep bum, electrifying bum, our tweets, turned on atmospheric heat. Bum, Everybody sing. It's say. all about the
1: money,
9: money, money. <gasps> it's you
1: <we> about <laughs> money, money,
9: money. We, we gotta get the world back on track. Carbon needs a price tag. It's all about them. Uh. Cha-ching, cha-ching. Yes, yeah, the. Ching ching, yeah, come on. What the thing? The thing.